I want you to turn your Bibles now to 2 Samuel chapter 11, the reading that we had earlier. It's on page 4, sorry, it's on page 262 of the church Bible, if you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you. Back in Wednesday, August the 12th, 1562, which wasn't yesterday, John Calvin started his sermon on this passage with these words. Now here is a story which should make your hair stand straight up on end whenever you think of it. That a servant of God as excellent as David should fall into such a serious and enormous sin that he could be judged the most morally lax and promiscuous person in the world. There's a sense in which the story recorded in chapters 11 and 12, one story, shouldn't be in the Bible. In the normal course of events, we know enough in our day and age about cover-ups from, in political quarters, from the very top layers of government. That this is a story which should never have reached the light of day. This is David. You may have noticed already this morning, even if you aren't a regular churchgoer, that the name of David has already dominated the opening parts of our worship service. I read a psalm of David at the beginning. We read together a psalm of David responsively. David's name keeps on appearing. Christmas is near. I know it's not that near, but it's on the way. And, and we're already thinking about it. At least I am. Because I love Christmas, and I start thinking about it now, and thinking, when can I get the tree as early as possible before everybody else gets theirs? Um, I don't know why I told you that. But when Christmas does come, over and over again, we'll be having these readings that remind us that Jesus' introduction to the world is in terms of David. He is the son of David. He sits on the throne of David. He comes in the line of David, he is the one promised to David's line to be the king who would rule forever. He is the second David. Indeed, in some of the prophecies of the Old Testament, he is called David. That's an, a title as well as a name for Jesus. David dominates the Bible. He dominates the Bible. The largest book in the Bible we call the Psalms of David. Though he wrote most of them, he didn't write all of them, but nonetheless, the book we call the Psalms of David. David is a monumental figure. And yet we have this. This story here, a story told with unusual artistry and brutal honesty, with no bland euphemisms, no punches pulled, no excuses given. This is more than we want to know about David. And what we wish we never knew about David. It is shocking. And yet it is not covered up. There's no airbrushing going on in the narrative. The story is kept into the Bible. And David's name is still kept in the genealogy of Jesus. And even the wife of Uriah gets a mention in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. 
This is David. The seed of David, Jesus Christ, would live and reign forever on David's throne. The word that was given to David is called the Torah Har Adam. David is at the center of the purposes of God for humanity. And yet we have this story. Here in this story we see the banality of a fall. There is something so pedestrian, so banal about the story. It is a fall. Like the fall that that is recorded right at the very beginning of the Bible. The fall of Adam. The first king and our great federal representative whose fall has altered history. One of the effects of that fall, which has gone into in great detail in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the human story, but one of the things that's happened since that fall of Adam is that succeeding falls take place easily. Sinning comes easily now to humans. We don't need to be persuaded into it to the degree that Eve and Adam were persuaded into sinning. The long drawn out temptations of Adam and then later Jesus are foreshortened for us. We fall at the first hurdle in the race against temptation. And the writer, as he tells the story, and this story may well have been written by David himself for all we know because of its artistry. The writer now slows down the narrative. Up to this point in Second Samuel, everything has been quickly told. There's been a fast-moving pace to the story. If you look at chapter 8, you have a record of war after war after war. Nobody pauses for breath. Everything is happening as quickly as it can. And now you come to chapter 11 and suddenly all goes slowly. Every detail is told. Every word that is spoken is explained. Every action is described. And what the, the author is doing is saying, slow up everybody. This is serious. This is sobering. This goes to the heart of the message. And we think of the context of the story. We spent a couple of weeks looking at chapters 9 and 10 in which the big emphasis was on one word. Chesed is the Hebrew word. It means covenant love, covenant kindness. David shows such love towards the grandson of his enemy Saul. He, he shows such love to a foreigner, to a Gentile outside of Israel, the son of an old treaty partner. He shows covenant love and kindness there. Now you come to this chapter. David shows no kindness, no covenant love or kindness to Bathsheba or to Bathsheba's husband or to the other soldiers killed on the battlefield as collateral damage in the battle. It's a shocking context. And it happens in such an ordinary way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings or messengers, only one letter in the Hebrew alphabet distinguishes the two words, king or messenger. The word messenger may very well be the best word because it's repeated over and over again in the passage 
And the word to send is the word that's based on that word. And that recurs again and again in the passage. And it would flow much more into the story if it read, in the spring of the year, the time when messengers go forth, that's what it says, the words to battle or to war are not in any of the originals, they are added to make sense of it. In the spring of the year, the time when messengers go out, David sent Job to out. That would flow, enter the flow. Either way, it doesn't change the sense of the story. But it was an ordinary set of circumstances. David remained in Jerusalem. In chapter 10, we're shown the normal strategy of David in warfare. David would send out his soldiers to fight enemies. And then later on, after, after the, the various, the deportment of the battle was set, David would come with his men and he would finish things off. So at chapter 11, verse 1, we have a repeat of what happens, the strategy of chapter 10. Joab is sent out with his servants with him. And then later, we're, we read, if we just went straight on from verse 1 to the end of chapter 12, we find then David later joining them and finishing the battle. In other words, when you read verse 1 of chapter 11, and it says, David remained in Jerusalem, the Bible text explains to you why he remained. He is at war. All Israel is at war. Some of the troops have remained with David in Jerusalem. And they're remaining with him. They're not at home with their families. They're not sleeping at night with their wives. They're at home with David in the palace. We have references to that throughout the text. All Israel is at war. David is at war. This will have a particular importance in a moment as the story unfolds. And it's springtime. The heat now has hit the city. People have to rest in the afternoon. A little afternoon nap is good for you. It's part of the daily routine for everybody. He rises from his afternoon nap, which is very ordinary. He goes on to his roof deck or his roof for a walk around uh, as to get some fresh air. The, 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 the language that's used suggests it was quite an energetic little walk. He did it for exercise. He was walking back and forth, back and forth, getting some exercise. And as he's walking back and forth, back and forth, he glances over the city. The city is full of little roof decks. It's a bit like these houses. When we were looking at houses, we were showing houses here, and they would show us the house, and then they would take us up to the roof deck. And there's a roof deck. There's, there's your little bit of plot of roof. And this is your neighbor's plot of roof. And this is your neighbor's plot of roof. And you could lie in a sun deck here, you know, and can tickle this one here, and he can tickle the guy next to him. I mean, all these houses are very closely together. And the Jerusalem in which David is, 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 is not big houses. They're, they're relatively small houses, all packed together around the, tent, the, the mount where the king's palace is. And contrary, contrary to popular sermonizing, the people then, a thousand years before Jesus, did not have nice big pools on their roof deck in which you could go skinny dipping. That just wasn't there. And contrary to popular sermonizing, nobody had their bathroom on the roof deck so that you could have a full body bath either. In fact, according to the art from the period, people would often go up onto the roof deck to get away from the claustrophobic heat of the house and they would do basic things like wash their hands or if it was a period as this 
it was in the life of this woman after her monthly cycle, she was doing the ceremonial washing, fully clothed, on her roof deck, with a bowl of water. That would be, and indeed the text leads us to see, that was the ordinary circumstances of this event. There was nothing to provoke it. The Hollywood picture is wrong. The scripture does not give us any of the usual excuses men like to take. The excuses that rationalize away rape, for example. The woman was ready for it. Or the, 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 the excuses that rationalize away the argument of the boy who will not take no for an answer from the girl that he's been out with that day. The Bible doesn't give the man any excuses here. The narrative only describes the action. Action verbs. David sees. David asks about. David sends for. David lies with. End of story. The key word is the word to send, which is also the word for messenger. He sends the troops to war. He sends his guards to escort this woman to his quarters. He sends for her husband. He sends her husband back to war, carrying his death warrant. He sends his men to bring the woman into his royal presence. David is in control. David is in control of himself. He is in control of his kingdom. He is doing as he wants to do. David is dominating the story. And there is nothing put into the story that allows us to excuse his behavior or that gives us even a shred of evidence that he is provoked into doing what he does. Everything is so laid out in this story that you can only walk away saying David is an absolute creep. He is absolutely horrible. He is not the kind of person we thought he was. Now, how can this happen? How does this unprovoked sin happen? And it happens, according to Augustine, through the imagination. Votius and Jonathan Edwards argue the case that in humans, temptation is first of all and primarily directed toward the imagination and then affects our desire and our will. Thomas Akempis describes it like this. At first, it is a mere thought confronting the mind. Then, imagination paints it in stronger colors. Only after that do we take pleasure in it. Then the will makes a false move and we give it our assent. Herman Bavink, the Reformed theologian, summarizes it like this. The mind enter entertains the idea of sin. The imagination beautifies and then converts it into a fascinating ideal. Desire reaches out to it and the will goes ahead and does it. The anatomy of a sin. Normally temptations come to us from the outside, we, the world system is described as, as being a temptation. The very world we live in, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions, is from the world. The world is full of uh, potential causes of sin in us. 
And the reason it's full of potential causes is that there is something in us that, that recognizes them, this sensual, fallen human nature. It's very interesting that in this story, there is no tempter obvious in the story. Normally, temptation involves a tempter. We have those two great accounts of Adam the first and Adam the second. That is, the first man and then the Lord Jesus, the last man. And in both those cases, the tempter, Satan, appears in the drama. We see him there, very boldly, involved in the drama. Sometimes, as in the case of Potiphar's wife, in the Joseph story, there is a person involved as deliberately tempting someone to sin. But normally, the tempter, Satan, is in deep cover. He is most of the Bible, from Genesis. He is in deep cover most of the, through most of the Old Testament until he comes out of cover when Jesus, the, the last Adam, the second man, the better David, comes onto the stage. There the devil turns up again. For us, we're not conscious of the tempter. For most of us, sin comes readily. We fall. The banality of a fall. The devil does not have to work hard with you and me. The ambiguity of the fall. This chapter is normally headlined David and Bathsheba. And there's some reason for that, of course. But the fact remains is that Bathsheba is only mentioned twice. The first and last time she's mentioned before her marriage to David is she's called the wife of Uriah. That's the way she's described in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus. She is in the story largely passive. She is seen and summoned and dismissed. She's brought to the royal palace under escort of guards. The only active verbs that are used of her in the story are her cleansing herself, reporting her pregnancy, and lamenting her husband. Apart from verse 3, she is now always mentioned in relation to others. There is no attempt in the story to make her an equal partner to this affair or a temptress. Those suggestions miss the point of the story. She is seen, described, named, summoned, lain with. Full stop. Not once is the finger of blame pointed in her direction. It's like the story of Adam. You remember? Eve is involved. But Adam gets the blame. In this story, David gets the blame. Bathsheba is involved. She sins. But her sin is not made much of. Adam, uh, David's sin is the sin that is made much of in the story. One of the other ambiguities, of course, is that there is no answer to the normal questions that you and I ask. We, we ask questions about what people are feeling. That's the kind of Society we live in, wonder how are you feeling? How are you feeling today? Usually with an atmospheric voice, someone comes up and says, leans in close and says, so how are you feeling? How are you, how are you really? You know those people that do that to you? It gives you the creeps, really. Because <laughs> you're racking your brain, you think, what can I tell them? You know, they're obviously wanting me to feel something negative and I feel bad. And actually, until they ask me, how are you really feeling? I was feeling fine. But now they've asked me how I'm really feeling. I'm trying to find a problem that I can share with them. You know that kind of person? Take them out and shoot them. Because uh, anyway, 
But none of these questions are answered. How is David feeling? Silence. How is Bathsheba feeling? Silence. Nothing is said in the text about how they're feeling. And nothing's... I tell you what, the, what, what is in the text, or isn't in the text that tells you something about this. There isn't a lot of feeling going on in terms of how David is feeling about her. There's no hint, there is not one hint of caring, of affection, or love. He sees her form, not her face. He doesn't recognize her. He needs to be told her name. He never mentions her name. He never talks to her in the story. The most telling verb in the entire story is this. He took her. He took her. And why that's important is, in the bigger story of the book of Samuel, is that this is precisely what Samuel the prophet had warned about years before. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Years before, when Samuel was warning the people who were agitating to have a king like all the nations round about, Samuel said, let me tell you what kings are like. This is what they're like. They take, and they take, and they take. They'll take your taxes, and they'll take your young men and put them in their army, and they'll take your daughters and they'll make them their wives or their concubines, and they'll take your lands and they'll use them, and they'll take, and they'll take. And here is David, David, to whom everything has been given, 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 given again. Throughout the story of David, we find this. He's given by Yahweh. He's given by Jonathan. He's given by Abigail. He's given by his adoring followers. And here, David is now a taker. He is a taker. He took her. Here is David acting like Saul. Here is David falling. Then thirdly, the complexity of the fall. It's wartime. It's wartime back in Israel and it's wartime out on the frontier. Everybody is mobilized. The army is mobilized. They're sleeping in David's palace. That's where Uriah sleeps with the other, the other soldiers who are following David. David is on. It, it's wartime for David as well. And the limits of holy war don't, don't end at the palace door. David is the commander-in-chief. He shouldn't have been sleeping with his own wife, far less with anybody else's wife. And so sin that begins in the heart of David begins to spread its effects. It contaminates everything it touches. It devises all manner of new evils, as Athanasius says. And Adam and Eve sinned, you remember? They started blaming one another blaming the serpent and then blaming God. Sin leads to sin. And so David starts to plot. Bathsheba gets to say something. Two words in the Hebrew. I am pregnant. That's the end of her lines. David has not seen her, heard of her, sent for her. Since that one night stand. The weeks have gone past. She realizes she's pregnant. The awful truth dawns on her. She is isolated. She can't talk to the king. She has no relationship with the king. She can't talk to anybody. 
Her life is at an end if she is found to be pregnant while her husband is away at war. And suddenly David reacts in this way. Here is some of the complexity of the story. David could have just denied paternity. There was no paternity test in those days. He could have covered the whole thing up. The way he treats everybody else, why should he treat her any differently? There's a complexity in in the strange relationship with Uriah. Which is not expanded on in the story, but do you notice, it isn't until he knows the girl's name that he sends for her. And she's brought to him. Did David feel threatened by Uriah? We don't know. There certainly is something in Uriah's language. If you look at verse 11, when Uriah is talking to David, Uriah says to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? David hadn't actually said that. He'd used this euphemism, wash your feet. <laughs> it's a strange euphemism. Uh, which, but he, that's what he meant. And Uriah knows what he meant. And he says that to the king. He's talking to the king here. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Is he threatening the king? They find out what you've done. It'll be the death sentence. You know that, according to the laws. He's suggesting that. There is enough question there, which isn't answered in the text, that suggests that maybe David is actually wanting rid of Uriah. He certainly wants to implicate him in a sin. He wants him to lie with his wife. But he's a soldier. Israel is at war. The soldiers don't go home and have pleasure with their wives. In wartime, everybody's mobilized for war. It was a sin. Uriah would have been implicated in a sin if he'd done that. Why is he so insistent? Why is he so insistent then that Uriah be killed? Those questions are not answered. But it's enough not to jump to conclusions about what is going on in the text. It isn't about Bathsheba. It's about David. It's about David's heart. It's about what's going on in this man's life and what he's done. And do you notice, do you notice how the thing is summarized in verse 27? The thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's what it says in the original. Was evil in the eyes of the Lord. A caring shepherd has become a ravenous wolf. And now he's exposed for that. Do you know there's a, there's a parallel with verse 25? In verse 25, David sends a message to Joab after the death of Uriah, which he set up. And not only the death of Uriah, but the collateral damage of other soldiers, men of Israel, who were killed in that incident. And David gets the message and he sends a note by a messenger again to Joab. In verse 25, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. Now, it's the same 
the very same language as in verse 27. In the original Hebrew it is, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Implication, it isn't evil in my eyes. Don't let it be evil in your eyes, Joab. But now in verse 27 we have God's verdict. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You get to that verse, you're in the middle of the story. In the middle of the story there is no repentance. There is no restoration. David is calculating and indifferent. He doesn't lament the death of Uriah or the death of his troops. When the man's dead and the grieving period's over, he orders that the woman be brought to his palace and be added to the number of wives he has. He's still in control. He's still in control. He's still the king. He's still barking orders. Still sending messengers here and there to do his bidding. Still sending people there, here, hither and thither in order that his will might be accomplished. Here is David and he's using power. He's abusing power. He's exerting power. And he's doing it for his own ends. This is a creep, this David. Why is it in the Bible? Why is he acting like this? Let me tell you what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. We'll just take out one little verse there. You, God says, you have despised me. You have despised me. Something has happened that is dark. In dear David's heart. And as the chapter 11 ends, David has stopped sending and stopped acting. And only God can help him. God help him is the message at the end of chapter 11. He has committed adultery and murder. Two blood crimes for which death is the sentence. Only God can help him now. And the second thing is that here is David, the great ideal king. Every other king in Judah was going to be measured against David. Either it said he walked according to the ways of his father David and that was good, or he did not walk according to the ways of his father David and that's bad. Here he comes crashing down. Because the message is, you see, he's the king, he's the ideal, but he's not the one. He's not the one. He's not the one who's going to build a house for God. He's not the one who's going to build a temple for God. He's not the one who's going to live forever and reign on his throne. He's not the one who can do anything for you. It's going to take another David, to do something for you. And so when you fast forward the clock and you come to the River Jordan, uh, out in the deserts of Judah, and Yeshua of Nazareth comes. And there in the water as he's been baptized by John the Baptist, God breaks the silence of centuries and God speaks from heaven. This is my son. Where does that come from? Psalm 2, Psalm of David. 
where Sam, he's describing the coronation of the coming king, the Messiah, God's king. This is my son. This is my son. Here's the king. Here's the king in David's line. Here's the king who's going to occupy David's throne. This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. The language from Isaiah about the king, the one of David's line, the one with royal titles, the one who will come as the servant of the Lord, the one who will be despised and rejected, but the one who will be filled with the Spirit and the one who will inherit David's throne, the servant king. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And no sooner is he acknowledged by God as David's successor, David's heir, David's son, then immediately he is taken out into the desert to be tempted by the devil as the second and last Adam, as a greater and better David, as the new and true Israel. He is tested, tempted, assaulted by the devil. And where Israel failed, and David failed, and Adam failed, Jesus wins outright. He resists the devil. He defeats Satan. He overcomes temptation. And the message is, in the words of King David, don't put your trust in princes, in mortal men. That's what we do in politics all the time. We take the latest superstar and we say he can fix things. And invariably he fails us. Don't put your trust in princes. In mortal men. Put your trust in Jesus. He's the only king who doesn't take. He gives and gives and gives again. Put your trust in him. As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you who trust his name will triumph in him too. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we have a better David, a greater king, one who did not fail, one who did not sin as David sinned, who did not abuse power, but used it as a servant to serve and still serves us with salvation. He serves us with his word, as you've done this morning in this room, bringing truth to us, not telling us to go and find it for ourselves, but delivering it to us. And not only that, as he does that, so he delivers also salvation to us. We pray that today we lay hold of that salvation for ourselves. We find our security from the evil one, not in our strength or strategies, but in him who is the righteous one. In his strong name we pray. Amen.